0: Hey folks, and welcome to this week's podcast. Uh, Before we get going, I want to let you know that we are in the midst of our fall fundraiser. Some call it the Hellraiser because it takes place in October, or should I say Rocktober. Uh, It is something we don't really spend a lot of time on the air pitching and doing that stuff, but there is some new gifts that we'll give out and uh, premiums for folks who pledge. So if it's been a while since you've pledged, if you're itching to support WFMU, head over to WFMU.org slash Michael, click on the banner at the top of the page and to help support this program, this podcast and Freeform Radio. So our guest today is Bruce Belland of the Four Preps. Uh, born in 1940, no 1936, he might be one of the um, the guys with the most experience I've ever had uh, on the program, and he's sharp as a tack here, so uh, look out. There's a lot of very interesting things about this band, about who they cross paths with, uh, and about their sort of trajectory in... Hollywood. Uh, his brand new book has just come out and you can head over to brucebelland.com or the 4 com and get some information about it. Super uh, interesting book and nice sort of, you know, all, I love how these books sort of tell the history of America in some ways. You know, what people were doing in post-World War II uh, America is so interesting and the explosion of youth culture and uh, bands like this who were had feet in sort of different worlds and it really i, I we talk about this in the the Q&A a little bit but had he been born you know five years later or five years earlier his career would have been so different i think uh just curious guy interesting guy great stories uh here it is me and bruce Belland. enjoy Okay, there is uh, The Four Preps. That was a huge, huge song by them, and on the telephone right now is Bruce Belland. Not only the lead singer of The Four Preps, but uh, he's a big-shot author, and he's got a brand-new book that I really enjoyed called Icons, Idols, and Idiots of Hollywood, My Adventures in America's First Boy Band. Bruce, welcome to WFMU. Thank you, Michael. Good to be here, buddy. I really, really enjoyed the book. I don't say that every time. It was super interesting and a real slice into a window of show business, that part of which was a real revelation to me. So to start off, you're born in Chicago, 1936. Your dad is a minister. And from what I read, it really seemed like your singing talent was apparent from a very young age. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Actually, I sang my first solo at age four in a uh, morning worship service. My dad drafted me to sing Irving Berlin's new song, God Bless America. So I practiced all week. Uh, I I could only get sick of chewing gum as my reward for singing it if I got it perfect and didn't miss a word. So I rehearsed for a week with my mom, who was my best friend and coach and got up and sang it without a mistake and got my stick of chewing gum and the applause and the approval of my parents made me realize, I want to be a singer. That was my dream at age four, right then and there, that first solo, this is it, this is what I want to do, and I never changed my mind on that, but that's how I first started
0: uh, my career as a singer. Yeah, amazing. So what percent of being good at singing is natural-born talent, and what is work? And I assume you need a little of both.
1: You do need a little of both, and I think most particularly the natural-born talent serves you without a whole lot of further ado if you're a single artist. But if you're a quartet, as we were, uh, it's going to take some work to get to blend, to think together, to harmonize, to realize uh, whose voice goes where and, and so forth, and enunciate the phrases together. So, it, it, I, you know, one of the comments I've had about the book, Michael, is that, boy, you guys, you didn't just fall into, it; you worked like crazy, and we did, we did all had day jobs we'd be to rehearse at 12 midnight and rehearse till two or three in the morning and then go to our day jobs the next day. So we, we, it did take some work in preparation, which we were delighted to do because we enjoyed, we really enjoyed singing together.
0: Yeah. 1946, your dad moved you to Hollywood. I guess he got a, a new place to go work. And you meet Glenn Larson right away, who'll end up in the preps. And there's some great stories about your early life when you move there and your... Um, the way that you adjusted to living, you know, from the Midwest to living uh, in Hollywood. Uh, as a young kid, you're a paper boy to the stars, really. I mean, it's a, it really is a mind-blowing list of people who are on your paper route. Lucille Ball, Jimmy Stewart, Harpo Marx, Jimmy Durante, Ira Gershwin, Gene Kelly. Tell us about the paper route and tell us about adjusting to living in Hollywood.
1: Well, of course, the adjustment was enormous because we had grown up. I had grown up till then at age ten in Chicago, where all the buildings were sort of, you know, gray or brown, and and so forth. And suddenly, we get off Route sixty six after driving from Chicago to L. A. We get off Route sixty six and head down Hollywood Boulevard for the first time. And, and then into West Hollywood, the community where we were going to live. And I'm seeing pastel houses, yellow houses, blue houses, even a pink house. You don't see those in Chicago. So right away I felt uh, I was in yeah, I was in Oz looking for the um, the Munchkins. It was just a magical place to me. I was so showbiz-struck by the time we got there at age 10 that I knew most of the landmarks as we drove past them, Grumman's Chinese Theater, Hollywood High School, Hollywood & Vine. And then I got a paper route at age 14 in Beverly Hills, across the tracks. Our community, West Hollywood, was very much a, a blue-collar uh, community. Michael, working people, plumbers and and bus drivers and so forth. But we butted up against Beverly Hills and. I got a job delivering the Hollywood Citizen News on what they called Stars Row, which is Rodeo, Cannon, and Beverly Drive in Beverly Hills. And I delivered to all kinds of stars, including one gentleman who one day took the time and patience to teach me the proper way to fold and throw my newspaper so it would land on his porch instead of under the bush where it went when I threw it. And he gave me 15, 20 minutes of instruction on the aerodynamics of folding the paper properly, how to throw it. I thanked him, and as he headed back to his house, I realized it was Gene Kelly. Mm-hmm. So there you go with a guy that took this time to teach a little paperboy a thing or two, and that was the beginning of my lucky exchanges with stars uh, from then on.
0: Yeah, it's, it's an amazing time, I guess, to be in Hollywood, to be right in, in the middle of things. Uh, at age 15, you go see the Mills Brothers. And I've always thought Donald Mills was one of the great lead singers, period. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, you sneak out your window and you go see all these nightclub acts. What were some of the best of them? And is that sort of the spark that sets off this idea of forming the Four Preps?
1: Yeah, no question of it. Uh, We lived two blocks from the Sunset Strip where Ciro's, Macambo, Trocadero, Interlude, Crescendo, all of the world-famous nightclubs were not far from my back door. And after my parents would fall asleep on Saturday night, I'd get up and sneak out the back window (laughs) and go up to the Sunset Strip and charm my way into the backstage areas of most of the nightclubs. And I watched, uh, one of my favorites was a a guy, Mutt. Many people don't remember anymore, named Billy Daniels, who had a big hit called That Old Black Magic. And I watched him work a couple of times and was very influenced by his style. The Mills Brothers, of course. One night I'm up on sunset, I work up my nerve, I sneak backstage behind the uh, Zeros. And the stage manager, of course, catches me the moment I walk in, but I charmed myself, and his was good graces, and he let me stay and watch the show, and there, there were Mills brothers, who I had, Michael, I had worshipped them, idolized them since a kid. My mom played them around the house all the time during the war, and I loved their sound. So I got to watch the Mills Brothers, and that really, on the way home that night, I said, that's it. I want to sing the harmony. Uh, and another influence on us, we saw a great act. I saw a great act called the Will Mastin Trio, which was where Sammy Davis first started to perform. His father, Sammy Davis Sr., and and Sammy Davis Jr., and Will Maston was Sammy's uncle, so it was the Will Maston Trio. And the thing I noticed is that Sammy, in particular, combined comedy, impressions, and parodies, and comedy with his great singing. And I said, you know, when we become performers, I want to entertain. I want to be funny as much as sing good music. And so his act really had an influence on me. So many of those greats that I watched in those days, Lewis, Martin Lewis, and I, I Lewis, So it was a great influence. It was a great way to grow up. I wouldn't have gotten that education, Michael, if I'd been living in Des Moines. You know, I happened to be living two blocks from where it was all happening. So I was a lucky guy in that way.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because your dad had you singing at funerals and stuff like that, but in your I, head, there seems to be no question that showbiz is where you were headed.
1: No question about it. And, you know, I had an interview recently say, I, your book seemed to suggest that you had a sort of a sense of it, it was just absolutely going to happen. You went to Hollywood High, and why not? Everybody else in your class was performing. And I, I think I did enter Hollywood High with the feeling that, well, it's happened for a lot of kids that went to school here before. Why won't it happen for me? So it definitely fueled my ambition. And then to run into three other guys at Hollywood High who are as driven and as vicious as I am. As you know from the book, we came from very, very meager backgrounds. <laughs> One fellow was uh, an orphan being raised by his disabled grandmother. Uh, one fellow was being raised by his widowed mother, who was a waitress at night up on sunset. Uh, and so we were from, and of course, pastors, ministers don't make a lot of money. So we were very driven, and as were a lot of kids around us at Hollywood High. But there's no question that atmosphere, and we were walking distance from Paramount Studios and Columbia Pictures and NBC. So we're surrounded by the business. We're surrounded by kids who are already performing. Some of them in in movies and and uh, on the radio. So yeah, it was uh, it was destined to happen. It wasn't taking no for an answer. <laughs> yeah.
0: The the book gets into some interesting times when your dad the, the the real serious minister and really had this idea that you would use your vocal gift in a religious affiliated way so that sort of you know give and take with him what was that pressure like.
1: Well, you know, it, uh, at first it was rather intense, and when I was when I was younger, of course, I had to do what my dad said to do. But an interesting counterbalance to his kind of strict regimen and 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 and, and the requirements uh, of me was my mom, who was a free spirited, joie de vivre oriented lady who saw the funny side of life, who absolutely loved music. I spent every day. Uh, of my young life on the piano bench next to her singing my lungs out, and she would coach me on how to sing and how to project and how to pronounce the words. And my dad would walk through the room hearing me sing and say, well, that's city's He's going to be a gospel singer. Well, at first, when I was eight and nine and 10 and 12, I did what he told me to do. If he wanted me to sing in a funeral, that's what I did. But when I got into my rebellious teenage years, 16, 17, and 18, and a thing called top 40 radio came along i was hooked on all of that and he was wanting to teach me more and more sacred songs to get me involved in a career as a gospel singer and i wanted to sing pop i wanted to sing mills brothers and Bing crosby and later on you know little richard and so forth so ultimately it led to a showdown when i was uh in my late teens and we were off for our first professional engagement out of town i had to tell him this is it i'm going into a full-time career in show business and uh It estranged us for a while, but uh, the love was very deep between the two of us. I had enormous respect for him. I don't want to suggest that I didn't. He was a very charismatic man, a very disciplined, very elegant man. But we saw life differently and what what we wanted to do, and finally in later years he accepted the fact that uh, even when I was in the wicked world of show business, I was a pretty straight and narrow guy, so I think he he got okay with it towards the end.
0: That's super interesting. I'm sure that's was on your mind, you know, a little bit, you know, every day as you kind of w- went through your career. So there's a vocal blend that I think is very unique to the four prep sound. And it's, I'm not really an expert on this at all, but just to my ear, I it's very different than every other vocal group. Can you, you know, it's not the four freshmen, it's not the Beach Boys, it's not the Kingston Trio. Can you help me understand what it is? And is it something that was organic or is it something that you designed I, I think it was
1: a little bit of both, Michael. I, I think that uh, we set out with very specific thoughts in mind, and and also to a degree, you are uh, you are sort of directed in what sound you get by the sound your voice makes. Everybody's vo- you know born with different pipes and different sounds and different timbers to their voice. Uh, And the sound we got, Marvin, our high tenor, we put the melody second part down. So that right away made us different than the lads, for example, who, as a rule, had melody on top. We were more traditional uh, kind of barbershop quartet in that we had melody second part out with a tenor part above it. Marv, having been a former Mitchell uh, choir boy uh, as a boy soprano and had been in Bing Crosby's movie and so forth, was really a, a seasoned and experienced singer... He knew how to sing both the bel canto, which is the big bravado tenor part, you know, loud and blustery, and he knew how to soften it to a lovely falsetto. So a lot of that sound that we had adjusted from song to song was Marv's Marv's influence up on top. He, uh, He had great flexibility in his voice and his sound. As far as harmonically, interestingly enough, Michael... Two of the two of the guys with all the hits we had and so all the success two of the guys in the group never learned to read music. Glenn Larson, our baritone, and Ed Cobb our bass, but they were such natural harmonizers that we would sit down to put a song together with our arranger and sometimes before our arranger could even play for Glenn what his baritone part was going to be on Moon River. Glenn had psyched it out and kind of knew where it was going to go. He just naturally fell into it. So it was a combination of, of spontaneity, of natural singers, uh, of a guy with a wonderfully flexible vocal quality on top. And he uh, also sang every kind of music imaginable from, you know, Calypso to rock and roll to Latin to burr Bacharach songs. So We would sometimes change and modify our our songs, as you may know when you listen to them, uh, uh, to match the song we were doing. So in some cases, we'd belt it kind of operatically. In some cases, like 26 Miles, thank you, we'd lean back and just have nice, easygoing harmony.
0: Yeah, gotcha. So you get signed in 1956 to Capitol, huge label, with the greatest... Uh, office building you know ever ever constructed <laughs> and it's amazing how fast you guys get into show i mean it's 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 like a whirlwind you know pretty quickly you're on, you tell the story in the book you're on tv with frank singing with frank sinatra and bing crosby and louis on from you're 19 or years old or so how are you dealing with this crazy whirlwind well <laughs>
1: Mostly in wide-eyed wonder. <laughs> I mean, as I said, I think that chapter is titled "Here I Stand" with Crosby on my left and Sinatra on my right. Well, that and you know the crazy thing about it, the wonderful ironic thing about it is that we hadn't had any hits when we got that show. But when we first began to record for Capitol, still in our teens, we ran into two agents at MCA who were up-and-comers, very ambitious guys. A fellow named Ned Tannen ultimately become one of the best studio heads in the history of film, and Jerry Parencio, who became one of the wealthiest men in America. But at that time, they were two young strivers, and we were four young strivers. So we joined forces, and even without a hit, because of the power of our acts, we had a very polished act combining comedy and good singing. They got us all kinds of great gigs. The first thing they got us was opening for Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, at the world-famous Coconut Grove nightclub about a year, Michael, after we had attended there as senior prom goers from Hollywood High. So a year later, after rented dinner jackets with our girlfriends at the prom, we were on stage, and we got such great reviews in that. The L.A. Press just idolized what we did. It was wonderful. Uh, our agents went to work with those reviews and got us on a TV special introducing the Edsel Pause here for laugh the Edsel and suddenly there I was for a week rehearsing with Sinatra and Crosby and Louis Armstrong and Rosemary Clooney and a guy named Bob Hope dropped in as a surprise guest star. So I was starstruck. I kept, you know, all that week wondering when the alarm clock on my clock was going to go, the alarm was going to go off on my clock and wake me up from this dream I'm having. I mean, I, I was, I never did get used to being in their presence. I was always just watching and wondering with my mouth open. It was just an extraordinary experience with no hit record yet, so yeah. bigger times were than that were right, going to come soon with a hit. But boy, I'm telling you, for guys that hadn't scored yet, we were we were in tall cotton. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing story. So yes, ni- the the next year, 1957, I think it's your sixth single, "26 Miles Santa Catalina," written by you and Glenn, reaches number two. It's a huge, huge song. I mean, it's it's still one of those songs that evokes that time. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting how it got made. You tell the story in this in the book of how the label was sort of trying to find that yours, what sound would be yours. You know, it, yes, yes. They, they had these lush records by Nat King Cole, and they had the Kingston Trio, and they were a few, but they were known for these huge, huge records. And Billy May, huge arranger. So tell us the story because it's very interesting of how this song, how you finally found the right sound to fit this song.
1: Well, some of it was accidental, some of it was intentional. I started to write this song one day when I caught summer school at Hollywood High and went to the beach and surfed with my buddies. Lying around in the afternoon, somebody pointed out Catalina and said, man, it's about 26 miles from here. And I picked up my ukulele. I always took my ukulele to the beach with me. It was a chick magnet, you know. So I started to sing 26 miles across the sea. I don't know where the melody came from. It just came to me. And I wrote about half the song at that point, and then now two years, years after that, uh, we're with Capitol Records searching for a hit, and Glenn and I sit down and shout the song, write a couple extra verses, and put some new lyrics in and finish it. And we keep trying to get Capitol to listen to it, but what our producer, who produced people like Louis Prima and Keely Smith, Al Martino, Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland. He was an old hand at director of business. He said, Let me tell you something. You guys are singers. Singers don't write songs. Perry Como, Eddie Fisher, Patti Page, they don't write their songs. We'll find you a hit. Well, we did a song by Burt Bacharach that didn't sell. We did Latin numbers. We did movie themes with big choirs and orchestras. Nothing. Finally, I was dating a girl in Nancy Sinatra's uh, social club at University High School, and Nancy was a friend, and I was dating one of her friends. One night, the preps went over to their meeting after the club meeting broke up for Cokes and cookies and hanging out and flirting, and when we took out our guitars, and we sang 26 miles for him, and that was it, and two weeks later... I ran into Nancy at a movie line in Westwood, and she said, Oh, God, when are you guys going record that great song? I said, What song? She said, 26 miles, and she sang a little of it. 26 miles. you got to record it, my friends. We all love it. So now I had some ammo. I went back to Capital, our producer. I said, Frank Sinatra's daughter in her whole girls club will buy this record. Please can we record it? And they finally agreed to let us put it on as the B-side. Not even the B-side, the Z-side of the big plug song, which was the A-side, a song from the musical, uh, The Music Man. Capital had invested big bucks in it, and they wanted to get some hits on the chart before it opened. So they gave us a song from the show to sing called It's You, which is a really mediocre ballad. In fact, I don't think it ended up in the final version of the stage show. It was not much of a song. But that was the A-side. That was the plug side. And a little old song on the back. In fact, there's a picture in the book of the ad in uh, in the billboard for the new record. And the title, It's You for the A-side. is about an inch and a half high. And the back side, back with 26 miles, literally so small, you can't read it without a magnifying glass. It was just a throwaway to them. Luckily, a, dish, a late-night disc jockey In Hartford, Connecticut, in the dead of winter in December, the record came out in December, which is another weird story, not much of a time for a romantic tropical song. It came out, and a Hartford, Connecticut DJ wanted to go to the men's room after he played the A-side, which he had been told to do by Capitol. He turned it over and played the B-side while he went up to Hall to the men's room. And When he came back, the switchboard was lighting up like a Christmas tree. People were calling left and right and saying, What is that song? Who are those guys? Wow, where do we get that? Thank God, Michael, you guys that perpetuate the legacy and play our music, we owe you guys so much. I'm telling you, this guy actually picked the phone up Monday morning and called Capitol Records and got the promotion department and said, you bozos are on the wrong side of the Preps record. I played it last night, the B-side, the place went crazy. Thank God they listened, they heard, they told their field reps to turn the old record over, It's the B-side is the hit, and then we were off and running.
0: What what musicians are on that session?
1: Well, that session was unique. The, the, that's another strange thing, which shows demonstrates how uh, how sort of transitional a group we were. Because the A side, the song from Music Man, was a sixteen piece orchestra conducted and arranged by Billy May. It was a big band romp. Got a forty swing. The backside, B side, Catalina. When they agreed to let us do the song, they also agreed to let us pick our own backup band. So when we finished "It's You" that night at the session, all the hip guys packed their horns up and left, and in walked five hillbilly <laughs> hillbilly musicians from Bakersfield. A great guitarist named Joe Maphis. He invented the double-necked guitar, which became quite a quite a hit. Uh, and his four Buddies from Bakersfield, they played in bars in Bakersfield for years, and they were on a a local TV show on Saturdays called the Town Hall Party, which was country music. And we saw them on the show and loved them and invited them to play for us. Actually, Ricky Nelson was the one that turned us on. He was a buddy of ours, and he said, "This guy Joe Mapes, man, you got to hear this guy." So he came in, and he did the back. They did the background on Twenty Six Miles, and of course, once that became our sound, uh, we used them on and on. But we very quickly been big men, our follow-up million seller. That was the wrecking crew. That's when we suddenly we we counted for something, and we could get the top guys we wanted. And uh, so the wrecking crew did a lot of our stuff. But that first one was those five hillbilly guys from from Bakersfield.
0: Yeah, when I read. That Joe Maphis in your book played on that. It, it kind of blew my mind. And if uh, we we play some Joe Maphis uh, records on the oh, show you, from you, time, you, to time. You, You've heard of him? You know who he is? Huh? Oh, he's the he's just a big guy who stood there almost with no expression on his face and played oh, yeah. amazing. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> If folks go on YouTube, they can. There's some town hall party clips there with the Collins kids and some. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yes. Great stuff. To, to yeah, so amazing how, like you said, transitional is a great, great word. Let me remind folks that Bruce Belland is our guest, and uh, we're talking about stories that are coming out of his brand new book, which is called Icons. Idols and idiots of Hollywood, my adventures in America's first boy band. And you make it clear over and over again in the book that the idiots are the four preps basically. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, we were young and impulsive and headstrong, and yeah. Well, there were a couple other idiots too. There was a Columbia yeah. movie executive we made. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't want to call capital idiots for fighting twenty-six miles for a full year, but I wish they'd been a little more open-minded about that too. But that that doesn't make them idiots, I guess. But oh, yeah. Well, there's, believe me, there's a fair share of idiots in every business, including show business, and uh, yeah. I talk about some of them. And yes, many of them were us doing things on live television to signal our girlfriends at home, which were pretty outrageous, but we uh, <laughs> got away with it. <laughs> uh,
0: around this time, you guys end up on The Adventures of Ozzy, and Harriet, which is a television show that was gigantic. I mean, I think maybe folks don't remember how huge uh, that show was. Eventually, you become a regular on that show, and you guys are singing with Ricky Nelson. It's an amazing time. You guys had 13 different songs on the Billboard charts between 1956 and 64. So explain it to folks who weren't there. How big were the four preps at their biggest
1: well, I you know, I, I guess we were one of the uh, two or three top groups for some time there. I know particularly we had our single hits, which put us in a certain strata of show business. But in the recording business, as I'm sure you know, you're really not a success till you've got a hit album. I mean everybody can get a hit single or two. We hadn't had a hit album, but when we did get our hip hit album it was a live in person album of a college concert, well of course the minute you get a live album of you in concert and it's a hit, your your booking's is sore because people wanna hear want to see in person what they heard on the record. That was the peak of our career. Once we had the first one, four preps on campus, the live in concert, and we made two subsequent albums in a row after that, that were also live performances. I think the only group of our genre to do three straight uh, in-person albums. Our booking shot up, so we would do 150 to 175 concerts a year for three or four years between 1962 and 65. Uh, and in most of the polls, we tied with Peter, Paul, and Mary for the top college concert attraction. We had our own airplane with our caricatures and our name on the side and you know we were living a high life and they're really you know we had grown up singing in nightclubs as we you know we began at the Cogner Grove for goodness sake but we got so absolutely nuts about college concerts that we, we did very few nightclubs after that we did mostly college concerts which are a much more controlled situation you don't have drunk heckling you or cigarette smoke to deal with or people complaining about their meal to the waiter so we loved the college concerts Things and that was that was we were flying the highest, pun intended, at that point with our college career.
0: I think you're right that it's important that you guys had the live records because that is where the humor and the full entertainment package that you guys offered really came through in those records and uh, you can hear there's all these impersonations you do and you make fun of each other and it's very relaxed and very natural and you can just tell the audience are just as kind of eating it up and it sounds very unique also to the time
1: I guess it was, yeah, and, you know, we now and then have a chance to catch some of the other groups in their shows. They were great, and they sang great, but as I said in the book early on, uh, we decided we're going to, we want to be called entertainers. We don't want to be called just another singing group. We want to be entertainers, and I, having grown up, as I told you, watching people like Sammy Davis perform and do impressions and stuff, there's no way, being the ham that I am, and I guess I have an affinity for impressions, that I'm going to get on stage and play it straight all the way through a show. Plus, then, my field, look at the fact that on stage I'm 5'6", and I'm standing next to my friend, Eddie Cobb, who's 6'5". So right away, you got comedy, they're just looking at us. Uh, and as I say, we from the beginning, we loved to do impressions. We worked so hard on those impressions. We'd sit up for an hour trying to get just the right inflection to imitate the Kingston Trio or the Platters or something. And when we got interviewed, we got reviewed uh, by the Herald-Examiner, that great review at the Coconut Grove, and again in Life magazine, they mentioned that these guys are entertainers. They do comedy and music. And we took great, great pride in that. I still do to this day. I look back and say, if there's one thing that distinguished us from all the other groups, it was that we put on a well-rounded show with as much comedy as music.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I I think there's like a great confluence of time and place in in your guys' career. It's, you know, you're in the film Gidget. You guys were sort of ambassadors of this kind of myth of sunny California that exploded. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, after the Second World War, people wanted to go and live a different life, sort of, and you guys were part of that. There's kind of a monkey wrench that gets thrown into all of this, uh, and it's one of my favorite parts of the book. You guys get drafted, you end up in the Van Nuys National Guard, and everything's cool for a while until you end up getting unexpectedly really called up to active service. And there's so many accounts of the Second World War or the Vietnam War. I think people forgot that for a long time there was a draft uh, before people were being sent overseas and people had to serve. And so you guys, you're service particularly is is emptying um, latrines out of airplanes. It is not in any way glamorous, and it is amazing part of the story. And what's more amazing about it is at a certain point, you guys figure out how to play a full run of shows in Las Vegas with George Burns while you're on six-day active duty from like 6 in the morning to 4 p.m. at night, and then you go to Las Vegas play show and then back emptying latrines the next day. Uh, that was one of my f- absolute favorite parts of the book.
1: You really have read the book. I love guys like you that do their homework. This is great. Thank you. Uh, uh, Yeah, and you know, when it was happening, I mean, we we had a top ten album and a top ten single. We finally got a coveted uh, booking in Vegas, which we had been trying to get since the beginning. Now we're going to be in Vegas with George Burns and Carol Channing. And as you say, Berlin crisis happens. McNamara talks JFK into activating some National Guard units, including our unit. And suddenly we're on full-time active duty in Van Nuys. Well, coal headlining Las Vegas. Well, we had our own plane at the time, and we got permission from the base commander at four o'clock when our duty was over to jump on our plane and fly to Vegas, get out of our dirty fatigues, put on silk tuxedos, go out and be stars for the evening, get back on the plane the next morning and fly to Van Nuys for military duty. And yes, it's true. I was put in charge of terminal services, which meant. When the 120 passenger transport planes landed after a 14 hour flight from Tokyo with 120 men there and eight overripe latrines, my job with four other guys was to wheel a big tank up under the plane, empty the the latrines, go upstairs and clean them out. This was all before four o'clock when I got in the plane and went. To the plane. And I kept saying all the time it was happening, trying to see the good side of all this misery. Just there's got to be there's got to be a movie or something in here eventually that I'm going to write. And years later, fifteen years after it all happened, I wrote a, a movie that was a pretty big comedy hit about our adventures and our, our crazy, strange, bizarre double life as performers and latrine cleaners.
0: Yeah, the movie's called Weekend Warriors, Hollywood Air Force, 1986, directed by Burt Convey, which was a a bit of a surprise. I was not able to track down uh, that movie, but I'm sort of dying to see it. So one thing that struck me is that Had you been born five years early, you would have had a completely different career in the music business. Because you used the word transitional earlier, and I love that. The Four Preps are sort of on the cusp of rock and roll, but you had one foot in that sort of nightclub kind of show business. Yes,
1: yes, yes. Yeah, that 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 whole pop world because you know, after all, Michael, we'd grown up and, and earlier in our career, I'm not sure we'd even signed with Capitol yet. Glenn became a page at NBC, and so there, he did a show called Queen for a Day, which was held at a huge nightclub called the. Uh, what was called the Moulin Rouge at the time. So uh, late at night when Billy Daniels was going to be there or Billy Eckstein or Sammy Davis Jr. or Pearl Bailey or uh, Martin and Lewis, he would call me and I'd head down to my little car and and we'd stand off uh, in the audience for the night and watch all these great nightclubs. So we were influenced number one, on the big band sound, okay, in nightclubs, the whole nightclub proscenium art situation uh, that we fell naturally into it. And when we first began to perform, uh, we did a lot of nightclubs around the country, and most cities of any 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 size at all had at least one nightclub featuring record acts. These were people who made records, and they'd come through their hometown and play for a week or two weeks, and the local musicians would all be in the band behind them. Many of them were music teachers from the local high school and college who played in the nightclub at night. So, I mean, most of the towns through the Midwest had at least... One nightclub, and in some cases, the dance pavilion, which is kind of the same. So we grew up in that tradition, big bands, nightclubs, uh, liquor, cigarettes, smoke, and then suddenly along came the concert field. But we were very much a product of that and made the general transition into, I guess, soft rock. One could call big man uh, kind of a soft, polite, vanilla rock, but uh, rock and roll we never were. We tried it on a terrible record we made before we had a hit. It was pretty embarrassing. (laughs)
0: Well, it's interesting because as a teenager, you know, you idolized the Mills Brothers, and then five, ten years later, the types of bands that teenagers were idolizing were so different, you know, in just a short period of time. Yeah, and I I assume you sort of saw all of that change coming, and you could see that the Four Preps were uh, trying to adjust their sound. Like 1963, there's The Greatest Surfing Couple, uh, a great b-side that you and Glenn wrote. Is that one of those tracks with the Wrecking Crew? Oh yeah! Oh
1: yeah! Absolutely! That, <laughs> yeah, we got <laughs> we got a little desperate after a while when we had all the hits and all the high living. And suddenly we weren't in the charts for a while. So we tried a lot of things. I had a greatest surfer couple. I can't believe that's out there for people to hear. That's <laughs> really embarrassing. It's so embarrassing. It's so maudlin and over yeah. the top. But you know what was happening? I mean, I'm sure you could understand. Is were things like tell Laura. I love her. All these songs about, you know, uh, mac and I have all these songs about people dying and tributes to people. That, and so the greatest surfer couple wipes out on the pier, and <laughs> we wrote a song. We tried to sound like the Beach Boys. It's embarrassing. I wish. I, <laughs> can we edit this part out?
0: <laughs> oh, I love, I love that. I think you've got it all wrong. I'm, on your, you know, yeah. I think that's going to be, you know, what you're, what you're known for. Forget twenty six miles. Well. Oh. Some, Similarly, a year later, and help. The word "help" is 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 connected because you guys have the record, "A Letter to the Beatles," which you co-wrote, March nineteen sixty four. Obviously, the British invasion is happening. It does borrow. You co-wrote it, I say, but it does borrow liberally from "I Want to Hold Your Hand." It's a it's a fantastic record, and it certainly points to the changing times and who your uh you know they're your new label mates, but they're also your your competition yeah so th- there's a great story of what happens to that record as it's slowly rocketing up the charts
1: yeah well you know as uh as the book indicates you know we we through our career did had fun and poked fun at all kinds of fads and trends from Mother Teresa to cannabis i mean we we covered whatever was popular we'd have a little fun with it, including Elvis including uh Avalon and Fabian and all, so forth. So along come the Beatles, okay, and them, their marketing phenomenon, this juggernaut called Beatlemania. So Glenn and I had a songwriter under her contract at the time who'd written a song called The Letter to Haley, which was a letter to Haley Mills from a lovesick teenage boy, and she answers back, you know, send money for a fan club card. So we took it, and then here come the Beatles. We said, okay, let's have a little fun with Beatlemania and fan club cards, and we write a song about a girl who writes, writes the Beatles and says, I love you, I love you, I always will love you, and they write back and say, thank you very much, but send 25 cents for a fan club card. And by that time, we had not had a hit. We had a chart record for two or three years, Then all the guys in the group, including myself, were embarked on other careers as well. Ed Cobb, by then, was producing Fleetwood Mac and Pink Floyd and Steely Dan and writing hits like uh, Tainted Love and so forth. Glenn was a hot sh- becoming a hotshot scriptwriter for Universal. Marv was invested in the stock market. I was doing voiceovers at Disney, writing theme movie themes for Disney uh, and so forth. So we were all kind of looking at to other things, realizing we didn't want to end up playing a bar in Bakersfield when we hadn't had a hit for a while. And then along came this gimmick, this Beatles thing, as we're kind of getting ready to pack it in anyhow. And lo and behold, we get the record crew together. We make this great satirical record. We do an imitation of the Beatles that is spot on. Some people, by the way, have said over the years the reason it got pulled off the market is we hadn't got permission from the Beatles to use part of their song, which is totally false. I mean, by then we had done impressions with 10 or 15 satire songs inside. We knew about changing lyrics and getting permission from a publisher before you put a record out, so that is baloney. So the first week it comes out and Son of a Gun is like number 80 on the top 100 with a bullet, which means it's hot. Um, we're, we're laughing. We have been kind of lackadaisical the last year or two about making a hit, now suddenly it fell into our lap. Wow, this is fun. And the disc are saying, well, the four preps are back with tongue-in-cheek. Here they go having more fun, and they played it, and they loved it. I had disc say, we're waiting for you guys to do something on the British Invasion, and along it came. Well, we're on the road in New Orleans. I get a phone call from our producer at Capitol and says, are you sitting down? Well, that's never a good sign when they start a conversation that way. Yeah, what's up? He said, we got a call yesterday from Brian Epstein in London who says, we have heard the Four Preps new record. We are not amused. We're very unhappy with it. And he says, uh, we're going to have to pull the record. And within 24 hours, they had issued a cease and desist order to all the radio stations not to play it, Uh, the same to all the retail outlets to get it off their shelves. And the record was gone. It disappeared. Uh, Of course, it's around now. It gets played to death (laughs) on YouTube. I'm convinced of two things. First of all, I don't believe the Beatles ever heard it. I I, I really don't believe they ever heard it. I think with their edgy sense of humor, John in particular, and Paul was a fun guy, I think they would have gotten a kick out of it. Uh, you know, it, it, but it really, it, it sort of hurt in some ways because our capital, our home for 13 years, uh, did that to us. Um, and, and yet, naively, I was even naive at that age. I thought, well, I mean, we've been with the label 13 years. These guys are new. Certainly, capital will side with us. Well, <laughs> they, they didn't, and they shouldn't have. They made the much smarter decision. We were on the way out, and the Beatles were on the way up. Uh, i An uh, uh, interesting let, side note about them. Six months after that happened, I got a letter from a woman who worked as a secretary at the Capitol Pressing Plant in Sydney, Australia, and she said, I came back from lunch with all my girlfriends from the secretarial pool a couple of weeks ago, and they marched us downstairs to the warehouse and handed us these sledgehammers, and we stood there all afternoon with tears in our eyes because we loved you guys, smashing the 2045 records of Letter of the Beatles that were spread out on the floor in the warehouse.
0: <laughs> wow. Amazing. You, you often hear about, you know, terrible record deals or, you know, record deals that didn't turn out to be what the artists thought they were when they signed them, and you guys were such young men when you signed, although it sounds like you had good advice and good uh, representation. So what was the, your deal with Capital? Was it fair? Did You know, you, you guys did put a lot of records and albums and singles on the charts. Did you guys get fairly recompensed? Un-
1: unquestionably, no question. First of all, remember, we went to Capitol under the aegis of uh, Mel Shower, our manager who represented Les Polymery Ford, so he'd been down the road with Capitol for a long time. However, uh, P.S., years later, I. I always run into fellow artists from that era who say they got chipped and they got, you know, st- stolen from. So, for the heck of it, I, there was an uh, I think there still is an organization, kind of a detective agency, if you will, that tracks down whether or not record companies have been fair with their artists when they get commissioned by an artist to go after them. So, I called him in New York. And I said, boom, 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 four preps. He said, what label? I said, Capital. He said, forget it. I said, "What?" He said, "We've gone after them a half dozen times. We've never found a penny out of line." He said, "They're the cleanest company in the business. You're okay."
0: Oh, well, that's that's sort of nice to hear, for a yeah. change. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the first check I got from when I bought a Corvette, remember? <laughs> yeah, you liked your cars. That's that's in the book. Uh the, we, we talked about how the sound was changing and how you guys were sort of starting to do your own thing and drift apart. There's an interesting single in 1967, Draft Dodger Rag and Hitchhiker. Now, to me, the A-side sounds like it's a fake live record because the uh, eventually the master was issued without the... You know, with the introduction, you can sort of hear it's in the studio. But the B-side to me is so interesting because it's much more in that late 60s, kind of almost like the association sort of a vibe. Yeah, Uh, And your, your, your blend, the Four Preps blend, the idea kind of worked really well with that. I think it was arranged by Leon Russell. So it really makes me think, oh, it would have been interesting had the band, you know, Hitchhiker is a really interesting indication of where the band might have led had they gone on.
1: That's very insightful of you. you. Obviously, you know your music, and you know years later, uh, I was in a reformed uh, port, a version of the group with Jim Yester from the Association, and having for ten years with him, sung the Association it's I never noticed this, but you're obviously musical. You pointed it out, you're absolutely spot on. It's exactly the kind of harmony that uh, the Association sang. And of course, this is before they they were around, so we we kind of thought in the same groove. That's a that's a Very, very insightful observation. Yeah, wow. That's good. And you know, the other side, uh, yeah, I'm sure it was a fake audience. We had success doing, you know, satirical material with an audience and laughter, so they decided it would be a good idea. And David Somerville who had been leading the Diamonds for years, and in the last year of the original four preps, he was uh, he replaced Ed Cobb as our bass. He sang lead on it. It would have been a whole a whole kind of a Kingston Trio era in our career if that had been a hit, because we sounded very much like in that folk vein. Hmm. two very different sides on the same record pretty interesting. We were trying anything at that time.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, so you you sort of laid it out. In, in one ways, you guys were a victim of your own... Um, well-roundedness, no question, no
1: question. I've always said that our versatility, in a way, was was our worst enemy. Because when you heard the Letterman, you knew it was the Letterman. When you heard the Kingston Trio, you, but you knew you'd you hear it sound one way on one record and another way on another. Because we could do it all. But yeah, that I think that was a setback in some ways. The thing that may have saved us and equalized that was that we did comedy, and that was interesting to people.
0: Yeah, that was very unique to you guys. So you, you all went on and started doing your own thing. You went on singing. You wrote, you worked at NBC as an executive. You wrote theme songs. You uh, One of the interesting ones, I thought, was this song Troublemaker for Willie Nelson, uh, 1976. Uh, we heard that earlier today. Uh, such an interesting song. Tell me about writing that. Well, by that
1: time, um, I was married with a family, but my parents, my dad was still a preacher, a minister with a congregation in West Hollywood, and I went over to see my mom one day. She fixed me applesauce pancakes once a week, and we were talking about them, and she said, oh... She said, we drove home. Daddy and I drove home along Sunset the other day. This was in the 60s. And we said all these communists out there lying around in the gutter and on the curb. I said, what do you mean communists? She said, all these communists, these people. I said, how do you know they're communists? She said, well, they're wearing, the men are wearing beads and sandals and they have long hair and they haven't shaved. I said, Mom... Jesus wore long hair and a beard and sandals. You don't judge somebody what they look like. Oh, well, I I'm, I'm, I'm I mean, those people. So, you know, I, I forgave her. She was old at that time and yeah, pretty open-minded as a rule. So I, I got a thinking about that and how we judge people by what they look like. And uh, at this point, right. David and I were doing a lot of very strong uh, social commentary against the war in Vietnam. And I wanted to write something about one of the you know, great peacemakers of history, uh, Jesus Christ. And so uh, I I wrote that song, and um, David put it to music, and a guy named Johnny Darrell was one of the first people who recorded a country artist, and it started to climb up the charts. Uh, And after it had been out two or three weeks with a bullet, this is amazing, Michael, this could only happen in real life, they arrest the Manson family. Mm. And suddenly this song I have written about someone who wears a beard and long hair and sandals but is really a peacemaker and a good person, everyone thinks we're talking about Manson. It gets pulled off the record, off the charts. Johnny Darrell goes into an absolute depression. Somehow, I understand he got in a bar fight or something. He ends up in jail uh, 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 for some time, and the song disappears I'm told, and I don't know if this is true, but it's a hell of a colorful story. After he got out, he went to something called a pass-around party, which is when a lot of songwriters sit around, and they pass a guitar around to each guy, and he gives them a story about a song that didn't make it that he loved. Well, it gets to Johnny Daryl, he sings Troublemaker, and Willie Nelson is in the, in the crowd, and here's the silent... Willie, I shouldn't say Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson's guitarist is in the crowd. Here's the song, takes it to Willie. Willie loves it. It's five years later now. The Manson thing is over, and he puts the record out. It becomes a title song, this double platinum album, and it's a, a cover story on Rolling Stone. And uh, oh, It was a great experience for me. I mean, that song, if I want to be remembered for one song, that's certainly at the top of the list. Uh, it means a lot to me, and Willie showed such faith in recording it and had trouble a couple times at some concerts when some of the very very conservative right wing people didn't like him singing about Jesus on stage. But uh, you know it's a it's a, it's an important song in my life and one that means a lot to me.
0: Yeah, and that story's not in the book. Uh, that's that's an amazing story of how you've you've had some great luck and some misfortune. Oh yeah. So, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I've read the
1: book. You know how often the word "lucky" occurs.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, ab- a- a- absolutely. Uh, one of the things that uh, I thought was interesting is that your daughter Tracy and her sister Melissa are in this band called Voice of the Beehive, a band that I love. Don't call me baby. I say nothing to me. Those are number one hit songs. Were you supportive of their uh, entry into show business?
1: Well, my daughters love to tell this story. I'm so proud of them. I and they wrote such great songs and sang in tune and I just love them to death for doing it. But they were both in college up in Santa Barbara uh, and I'm producing television at the time I, I think it was named I don't remember what I was producing anyhow they said dad we want to come down to LA and take you to dinner we want to talk about something well fathers of daughters know when their daughter wants to take her to dinner <laughs> this is a big deal and they sat down and said dad we're so frustrated in college you know as little girls we used to stand in front of the mirror with our hairbrushes as microphones and sing we want to have a band we want to go to London they love Americans over there they love American pop we think we could make a hit over there we want to drive out of college and go to London. Okay. Now, I'm sure you'll agree that most fathers at this point would say, no way. You're staying in college. You're getting a degree. Forget it. Hi, however, they told me this <laughs> years later, said, oh, you guys are going to have so much fun. You think you've had fun? Where till you get on this roller coaster? You are, in, this is going to be the greatest ride of your life. Good luck. <laughs> and they went over there and I gave them a little money, but not much. And they worked as waitresses and sang in the subway on weekends with their guitar cases open for money donations. And, uh. One night they called me as they were struggling. They were living in a squatter's flat with a bunch of other striving musicians. They called me and I said, "Where are you? It's noisy to be and They said, "We're at the Hard Rock Cafe having dinner." I said, "How could you get to the Hard Rock Cafe? You're working in a subway, it's practically starving." They said, "No, Richard Branson has taken us to dinner. We're signing with his record label." And the next thing you know, yeah, don't call me baby, which is very much a feminist uh, anthem. Uh they wrote a lot of social commentary. My older daughter wrote the songs uh about climate change and about feminine, feminism and, and and so forth. I was very proud of them. I, they never made it in the States. I'm not sure why, but uh they were very popular over there and a few years ago did a reunion show after about 15 years away and sold the places out and so it was a, it was great to live it uh, again through them. I'm very very proud of them, and they didn't get screwed up with drugs or any of those things. They uh, they kept it pretty straight and lived a high life and had to stretch limos and MTVs for a while. And now they're back to real life. One is a teacher, and the other one is an artist.
0: Yeah, I also think it's lovely that it kind of bookends your relationship with your father, and you—you you sort of—you weren't a hypocrite, you know. You were uh, gave them the encouragement and and love that they needed to to do their thing. I think that's important. Uh, the four preps did get back together in eighty nine, and then again really from like the early 2000s until the the pandemic so you've right. kind of been out there doing it again i mean there's the four preps that you've done some acting some advertising some voiceovers you were an executive you've written scripts for tv and broadway and film and theme songs and now a, a book are you just like a crazy person who can't stop what's <laughs> what's you know what 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 makes you do this I, I, Michael,
1: I can't hold a job. I have to
0: keep reinventing myself. You know. I see.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, that's a modest answer. I, I, yeah, I, you know, I, I, uh, I, I do seem to be open to everything as a possibility. I, 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 I guess. You know, if you were, again, you did read the book, so you know that my father's speech to me really early on, when I was a teenager, feeling like a loser, uh, that it's important to believe in yourself. Don't ever lose that self belief. If you let that go, you're in trouble. But don't let the people chip away at it. So. I, I, my wife is always said "You're so fearless." I don't believe the things you try. And I guess so. I guess he implanted that self-confidence in me. So I, I do owe so much to my, my mother, yes, musically, but my father in terms of, of self-belief and confidence and, uh, and, and not giving up. So I, I'm just a lucky guy that some of that's in my DNA, I guess.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, it's super interesting. And like I said, we've just kind of touch the tip of the iceberg folks can go to one of your your best websites i think brucebelland.com and the four and get information about you and and the band and this book which is called icons idols and idiots of hollywood my adventures in america's first boy band boy this has been super interesting bruce i really really enjoyed it
1: well, likewise. I mean, I, 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 as I say, I love guys like you that have done your homework and ask intelligent questions. I'm, I'm told I'm supposed to say that it's available on Amazon. I don't know what that means because I don't Amazon, but the book is available on Amazon. So they're right. My manager will forgive me now. I suck in a plug.
0: Good, good. We <laughs> want to make sure your manager is happy. That's my main goal today. <laughs> Let's hear a Letter to the Beatles, if you don't mind, because I think our audience will completely get a kick out of it. Anything else we need to know before we hear this, what I think is a number one hit record?
1: Not really, except thank you so much. As I say uh, time and again, it's guys like you who, who respect and, and continue the legacy of pop culture in this country that uh, enrich our lives, and I really appreciate the, the chance to talk with you.
0: Oh, it's been totally our pleasure. Thank you, Bruce. You bet. Bye-bye. My
2: girl fell in love with a singing group From England far away She lost her mind, she lost her heart When they began to play I wanna hold your hand I wanna hold your hand I wanna hold your hand And so my girl wrote a letter to the Beatles Saying...